0: Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can uh, see all of the creative work associated with all of our episodes and also listen to our shows on our website for free at onstrategyshowcase.com. Upcoming episodes include uh, Liquid Death. It's a show we just recorded. It's the uh, new water brand that's marketed like a beer and it does some phenomenal things. And if you're not familiar with it, I think you'll really enjoy this episode and the originality of all that's being done we're also soon to release another classics episode on ddb's uh, vw think small campaign from the 1960s hopefully we'll get that out in the next uh, week or two we're also producing a, uh, a six episode series on planning for effective outcomes I know when we hear a lot about effectiveness, it's generally associated with the results at the, the end of a campaign. Uh, but I wanted to explore creating effective outcomes at every stage of planning and executing, uh, because really without that understanding and the attention to detail at every step, there are typically a lot of negative consequences that can derail everything that follows uh, downstream. And this cannot be uh, undone. Uh, so, you know, from budgets and objective setting to strategy and writing a client brief uh, from the client side, that is, to creator brief writing on the agency side, to creative development, to comms planning, to data analytics, tracking and measurement. We have all of these buckets of activities that go on throughout the cycle. And I think we, um, we have the opportunity to learn from some of the best about how we can uh, better ensure best outcomes and the most effective way to do those on along each uh, step of the journey. Each of the episodes will focus on one of those buckets and we're bringing on guests who bring sort of a great perspective and practical tips that you can use to best ensure Uh, effectiveness at each stage of the journey. And I think this is a series that will be worthwhile for both the client side marketers and for those of us who are on the uh, agency side. We just actually recorded our first episode yesterday uh, with Mark Ritson and uh, all of the episodes uh, should start rolling out. By the end of September, so a different a different sort of thought leader working uh, with us on recording episodes for each of the six uh, in the uh, series. Anyway, back to today's episode. Uh, we talked today to uh, James Herman, who is the author of two books. He's the uh, he's currently the founding partner at Previously Unavailable. It's an innovation studio in Auckland. New Zealand. Uh, We talk about his latest book, which is uh, Future Demand. Um, You know, James has been involved a lot in the effectiveness community. He's also a very plain spoken guy who uh, does a a terrific job of simplifying a lot of these complex topics uh, so that we can understand them and understand how we can apply them to our, our world. Uh, James suggests uh, that we start using the language of business to help improve the perceived value of a brand within our organizations. We're all familiar with the uh, the implicit eye roll that tends to happen when we start talking about brand building and, and the questions that result from that. While his new book is geared towards startups, there are universal lessons here for all sizes of organizations that struggle with sort of building business cases for marketing investment in both the uh, short and the long term. Simply put, I think James believes that as marketers, we have two jobs. We've got to harvest existing demand and we've got to create future demand. Uh, He helps us better understand these two tasks and how we can best plan for them. So uh, I'm thrilled to have James Herman on uh, his new book, Future Demand. Enjoy. Where did this book come from in your mind? Uh, Well, a couple of places. So
1: yeah, as you mentioned, my company in New Zealand, uh, we we do a lot of work with uh, startup and early stage companies, uh, many of whom we invest in, uh, and and so our kind of um, you know uh, we've got a lot to lose if we if we don't get it right, right? If we don't help them build their their brands and their companies in a way that generates a return, and uh, and so having been a part of the the big you know, big business world, the big advertising community for for many years, and having learned a lot through that process, I I think it was about, you know, how do we bring what we've learned in that world to bear on startups to help them understand what is the value of a thing like brand? And and to your point, you know, over the last, well, really 20 years, you know, if you go back 20 years... um, Really, the only effectiveness research was being done at an academic level and published in journals. And most of that wasn't really, you know, available to or at least read by, you know, the vast majority of the community. And it wasn't really until kind of the, you know, kind of 2006, 2007 that Peter and Liz started to get kind of going with their research using the IPA data bank. Um, Who Who are Peter and Liz? Peter Field and Liz Bonnett, who are the um, oh Liz, I thought you said Liz. Excuse me, Liz. Yeah, Um, and uh, and and I was working on my book, The Case for Creativity, and soon after that, um, in 2010, uh, Byron Sharp's book, How Brands Brands Grow, came out, and then that sort of that was a really, I think, a really pivotal period in advertising where we went from an industry that you know. maybe had these halcyon days that we talk about where clients really just delighted in the magic of their creative agencies. To this time when I think, you know, marketers were were really grappling with some evidence to um, defend themselves against the suspicion of boards and and executive culture that had been really lobotomized by accountants and lawyers and and other sort of um, cyborgs. And so, and so, really, we had this kind of period where we uncovered a whole lot of evidence about what works in advertising and marketing, and why it works and how it works, and uh, and so really for, for me, like I'm less of a marketing scientist and more of a marketing science communicator. So in the science world, they have scientists who perform the science. They have this kind of field called science communication, which are people that are good at understanding the science and then putting it in really simple language so that normal people can understand what those scientists have found. And uh, and so Future Demand is really about science communication, marketing science communication. It's about taking all of this stuff that those various different effectiveness researchers have studied and learned and uncovered and bringing it to bear for startup brands who are at a completely different life stage to those big businesses, but can still benefit from the same sorts of positive effects that brand building and marketing produces when it's done at its best. And of course, in the startup community, what they've become Amazingly good at is performance marketing. So they are just super good at doing that short-term, uh, short-term performance marketing stuff. Um, they're they're just they've got that down to a fine art. What's them what they're much less good at is brand building. And um, there tends to be a skepticism about brand building in the startup community. And uh and so this was really an attempt to say, well, you know, what role does brand play for startups? Um, how and why should they be? Sort of doing it. How is it going to add to the value of their companies and their journey as a startup towards hopefully an exit or an IPO? Um, And um, and what are the kind of the ways to do that? How do you get started on that journey?
0: I want to talk to you about the word, the term, brand. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have been talking about it recently. I just listened to a podcast from work the other day where where there was some conversation about what exactly brand means. What what do you think is the problem we have with brand? Well, how how did it get to be this way?
1: Yeah, I mean, the fact that that podcast that you just listened to exists um, in 2022, (laughs) right? When we've had brands for I don't know how many hundreds of years, is kind of that's really that is 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 really typical of the problem, right? Brand is this nebulous concept, Um, and and you know, as strategy people, we're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be really you know, preoccupied with simplicity and clarity and brand is this nebulous concept that's neither simple nor um, nor clear and and I think it's really you know I think if you think from the perspective of the rest of the business community that aren't marketers right and they they see us doing brand stuff which, a, kind of looks like a hell of a lot more fun than what they're doing. And B, problematically, the people that are doing it don't seem to understand what it is. So if I say to you, could you could you succinctly, clearly describe what a brand is to someone that didn't know, right? You'd probably struggle with that. Um, as would most marketing people. The fact that we find it very difficult to define what a brand is or what its value is or how it works is enormously problematic because if you're someone outside of the marketing department and you're like, you keep telling me this thing's important, but you don't seem to actually really be able to explain what it is, then obviously that's going to kind of arouse a lot of suspicion in those people. So I think in marketing, we're very guilty of having these concepts that we hold up and we revere, but that we can't articulate. So another one is insight, right? If I asked anyone to define what an insight is, they would really, really struggle to do that. Creativity, really important. Define what it is. We all really struggle to do that. So I think we've, we've kind of like really made life difficult for ourselves by, by championing concepts that we find it very difficult to articulate in a way that, pardon me an accountant really doesn't find it difficult to uh to explain what profit is right that's a really easy concept to explain when we talk about brand and we have troubled and we trip over ourselves trying to explain what one is that kind of you know that makes it very difficult for others to believe in um in the power of what we're talking about so future demand really like going back to the idea of science communication really came from a place of thinking well you know let's get past brand and kind of get into what's its value. What does it do? How does it interface commercially with the business? How does it, it, it um, contribute to the growth of a business? And, and really kind of, you know, the, the thinking around this was based on watching a lot of startups grow um, you know, and 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 as I said, we work with a lot, as do Facebook, and I had a really interesting conversation with someone at Facebook who had noticed this pattern, which was very consistent with the pattern that we'd noticed, where startups start up, they have a novel kind of innovative product, they do performance marketing, right? They use Facebook's algorithm and and get their kind of product advertising out to people. um, And that works beautifully. Facebook's algorithms are amazing at finding people who are ready and willing to buy your novel new product. So they grow really quickly. um, And they have this period of, of amazing kind of growth and low cost of acquisition, and everything's really rosy. And then usually two or three years in, that growth starts to plateau. And, and the cost per acquisition becomes much higher. Uh, it becomes much harder to find new customers. Um, and, and life becomes a great deal more difficult for the startup. And often what happens at that point is they either die or they sort of turn into dead brands walking. And so analyzing what happens there, you know, what we kind of circled around was this idea that What performance marketing is amazing at doing is converting the demand that exists in a market. But performance marketing or demand conversion activity can't convert demand that doesn't exist, right? And so really, the theory of future demand is the idea that in any market, there's a group of people who are in that market and ready to buy, and that's what we call existing demand. And there's a much bigger group of people who aren't ready to buy just yet, but will be some point in the future. And that might be in a month or three months or six months or two years or whatever. And if that group of people who aren't in the market yet, but will be, if they become familiar with us, if they become kind of connected to us as a brand, when they come into the market, they'll be much more likely to choose us. So, We've got this job to do to grow our our kind of future demand, grow our brand among future customers so that when they come into the market, they gravitate towards us. Um, And and so our job really is to do two things as marketers. It's to harvest our existing demand and it's to create future demand. Um, and, uh, And if we create enough future demand, then what happens is our performance continues to be really efficient in future. If we create no future demand, we hit that plateau and life becomes much, much harder for us. So when we think about the long-term growth of a startup over the 10 years on average, it takes to get from, you know, first being invested into having some kind of exit event, then if we want to survive that whole journey, we need to be both harvesting existing demand and creating future demand.
0: So in essence, what you're doing is you're creating proxy language for labels that are have- of uh, lacked meaning or creating confusion. So, for example, uh, you're looking at, you're looking at the idea of using future demand versus existing demand as almost a uh, proxy language for performance marketing and brand marketing. And I'm wondering, is that, and that seems to make a ton of sense to me because it's, we, we struggle as a marketing industry to be taken seriously. In the C-suite, and and is this is this part of being able to make a better business case for marketing in the C-suite? C-suite, whether startup, early stage, or late stage, is that how you think about this? Yeah, very much so.
1: Um, so, so I guess having been involved with startups for now so long, we're we're also very involved with the venture capital community, um, and they, you know, communicating with them is. You know in in many ways like communicating with a corporate board or a corporate executive team they have a lens which is very commercial um you know their whole business is 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 predicated on investing in these companies and making them grow bigger and faster uh, and so they want everything to be framed up in a way that helps them understand how whatever's being discussed is going to help do that uh so um so i think that you know the benefit of being exposed to a lot of vc conversations is that they're very they're very ruthless right if you don't convince them they just don't invest in you um and and so you've got to find ways of convincing that community to believe in in brand so that they can kind of get behind it and and invest in it and so i think the in many ways, it's sort of it's sort of starting with can we convince the hardest audience of all, which is VCs, and if we can do that, we can probably convince boards and executive teams as well.
0: When we look at the this idea of sort of performance-based marketing, and uh, I'm curious about pulling this apart a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, others have talked about this in the past, like Jeffrey Moore had a great book in the 90s called Crossing the Chasm, mm. uh, using, using similar sort of language, but talk, talking about it in a different context. But uh, tell us about the danger that that early stage uh, company faces. At the earliest stage of a company, the whole
1: objective is to get the thing off the ground and into the world and kind of growing um, and reaching and 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 succeeding with its first group of customers um, and what you know the way that startups are really different to corporate brands is that startups tend to you know the whole reason they exist is is because they've invented something that's novel they've created something that solves a problem that isn't already being solved by another company um, and you know whereas corporate brands often they're playing in categories where there are lots of sort of mostly pretty similar um, products and competitive offerings so startups start and they've invented this kind of new and completely unique thing and if they've done that job really well right they've created they've solved a problem that lots of people have already and are kind of waiting for a solution to come along and that's what i call pre-existing demand it's that sort of latent group of people out there in the market who have the problem that you're solving and if you put the right solution in front of them they'll go thank you, I've been looking for that for some time. Yes, I'll buy that. Um, And what the first job is of a startup is really to kind of identify that group and to reach them. Um, And if they do that successfully, they get up off the ground, they launch successfully and they begin to grow. But the reality is that that group is finite, that group of kind of pre-existing demand customers out there in the world, that's a finite group. And so, you run out of those customers at some point you run out of those people that feel that problem really deeply and will be motivated to buy your solution just on the basis that it solves that problem that's a really important one to them further growth you know growing past that and this is the whole crossing the chasm thing growing past that requires a really different type of conversation you know you're talking to people that don't feel the problem quite as keenly or don't sort of immediately understand your solution quite as well they need a bit more time and they need more than just kind of you know to understand what your solution is they they sort of need to feel familiar with you trusting in you they need to feel in some ways like they sort of like you as a company and they want you to to be in their world and that's a really different appealing on that basis is really different to just putting a really clear product proposition in front of people. So, So the danger really in just doing performance marketing, which by the way, I'm a huge advocate of as being one half of marketing's job. Uh, But the danger of only using performance marketing is that we do eventually run out of customers. And this is what we see in all of these curves that we've seen and Facebook has seen and so on, is that eventually kind of your growth plateaus and you run out of that that early group of customers and you need to generate that next group of customers, that future demand, those people that are going to come and buy from you after the, that, that sort of very early stage group of customers, you need to be building a relationship and a rapport with those people before they decide that they um, you know, have the problem that you solve or they need a product like yours.
0: You've probably got a year or two in terms mm-hmm. of being able to tap out that early market. Is that fair to think about it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a sort of a fi-
1: finite number of them, and uh, and just a you know a finite amount of time that you've got to sort of do that job and do that job really well, but also be doing the next job at the same time. Um, and this is something which actually. Is good, um, uh a, a guy called um john denny who r- runs digital marketing at a vc in the us called kavu ventures and he he put it really nicely he he sort of likened existing demand and future demand to a farmer planting fields and and the pl- farmer will plant a field the, the plants will grow they'll harvest those plants and they'll continue to grow and they'll keep harvesting them. But eventually those plants are going to need to be replanted. And then the kind of the law of the farmers, you can't just plant seeds and then start harvesting straight away. So what the farmer will do is he'll he'll be um, he'll be growing that that first harvest and he'll be planting the next one so that when that first group of crops runs low or runs out they've got the next field to go to and begin harvesting that. And so I thought that was a really good analogy for what we need to be doing because a farmer would never do that in sequence. They would never plant a field Harvest it to death, and then and only then start planting the next field that would be crazy they 'd have this whole period of you know having no income and so this is the way that we sort of need to think about marketing. We need to be harvesting our existing demand, those fields that we've that we 've got that are green and lush, um, and we also need to be planting the seeds in that next field to make sure that you know next year we 've got something to
0: harvest so the The idea that I think uh, John Lombardo was on the show and we talked about. The um, Ehrenberg Bass ninety five five rule, hmm. which which is uh, a sort of a, a a different way to think about the way people have talked about this recently, but it's very relevant to what you're talking about. And their theory, and it's the it's it's the the theory is that as you know, five percent of the market is probably in market at any particular time, and ninety five percent is not. So there 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 they may be months out, they may be years out, depending on your category the idea is that that um um where there's one point of view that might say you're wasting money investing in those people who are not in market uh, they're basically they're basically saying that you just need to treat them differently but you you don't do them at different times and um i think that's the key to this is that you need to be doing both at the same time right
1: yeah yeah that's that's quite right yeah 955 is really it's a really interesting sort of heuristic um and and what's great about it is it it has sort of um opened people's eyes to this this sort of fact that was always really staring us straight in the face um when you when you think about it but but you know professor uh, john dawes put some sort put, put a kind of catchy uh, piece of thinking around it and term around it um and the idea Really, I mean, Dawes's 95.5 rule is based on a sort of thought experiment that. B two B brands or businesses roll over certain categories of supplier about once every five years. So that means they'll be in market looking for that sort of supplier for one quarter out of every five years, which is about five percent of the time. Um, now, actually, you know, if you look at other categories like milk, um, I bet you only go uh, you know around a week between right. buying milk, um, and so you know you will be in market for milk actually a great deal of the time, more than five percent of the time but but the the idea is that generally speaking uh, people are in market uh, a lot less than they're out of market and so what do we do when they're out of market and like you're saying one kind of one piece of thinking has been really that we just leave those people alone you know they're not in market so what's the point in trying to communicate to them they're not ready to buy why would you waste money sort of trying to communicate with them And the reason why it's really smart to spend money communicating with them is that as humans, we have a familiarity bias, right? And what familiarity bias means is that we're drawn to things that are familiar um, and we are more likely when we get into the position of buying something, we're more likely to choose something that we were familiar with before we got into that buying situation than we are to choose something we're unfamiliar with. And there's plenty of research and evidence around this. If you show someone a, a, a product from a brand they're familiar with and another product from a brand that they're unfamiliar with, they'll usually choose the product from the brand they're familiar with, even if the other product is rationally superior. And this is because of this familiarity bias that we have naturally as humans. It's an unconscious thing. It's deeply rooted in our reptilian brain that we are, we, we absolutely are drawn towards things we're familiar with. So if you imagine that people come into the category um, and and they're not familiar with us. So we pop up with our extremely well-timed performance ad um, that catches them just as they come into the market, you know, no wasted, absolutely perfect placement. And they're unfamiliar with us. They've never heard of us before. But by the way, one of our competitors who they are familiar with um, also targets them at the same time, who are they going to choose? It's not going to be us. And so, The thinking here is how do we build familiarity, which, by the way, takes longer than simply converting a sale, which can happen in the space of one ad or campaign or sort of good offer. How do we build familiarity before people come into the market?
0: When when John Lombardo was on the show, I asked him, how how do you define the future market? How do you make the business case uh, to the the C-suite or even to a CMO? Uh, mm. to invest in it. Do you have any insights on how to quantify it or how to make a case for it um, in in real tangible terms? Mm.
1: So first, I mean the first point, and this has been proven out, I think by the IPA, by um, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, is that you you know you are most successful when you target what they call all category buyers. So what we mean by all category buyers is just anyone, Who is likely to come into your category um, at some point in the future Um, now that's not absolutely everyone because in certain you know fields if you're marketing a you know a femcare product for example men aren't going to be category buyers of your femcare product Uh, and so it's not always all people but it is all the people that could conceivably within the next kind of period of time come into your market and buy your product when and what the evidence sort of shows is that the brands that manage to, you know, to to target and reach all category buyers are the ones that grow the most efficiently. And so that's first place to start is kind of by thinking about, well, who are, what defines a category buyer in our um, in our category? And then to really go out and spend as much as you can reaching as many of those people as you can. Um, and by the way, at the moment, I'm talking about creating future demand, not, not performance marketing and converting existing demand when it comes to kind of brand building creating future demand it really is about speaking to those very big very broad audiences and part of that is because you never really know it's very you know it's basically impossible to predict exactly who's going to come into the category at what point in time uh and so it's best that we kind of reach as many of them
0: as possible so when you when you um and, and I'm sure you've come across this resistance. And I think almost anybody in our industry has in trying to make a business case, um, you hear this sort of pushback that says, well, oh, shit, look, Google built this massive business without ever doing brand advertising. Amazon built this massive business without any advertising. And you begin to hear that and you kind of go, well, in, it, from an advertising perspective, they're actually Right but how do you how do you how do you suggest people defend against that uh but uh, uh argument yeah i mean it's
1: such seductive logic isn't it we see these kind of amazing <laughs> outliers and we go oh, maybe that's the way that we should do it and um yeah and and where to start on this so i mean the first place to start is google and facebook and amazon created some of the most Transformative, revolutionary products and platforms uh, in in the history of the world. So, I mean, the first place to start, the first thing I'd encourage people to think about is: is your product truly as transformational as those products and platforms? You know, if you're really kind of if you're if you're really honest with yourself, are you really creating the kind of thing that has the the sort of inherent virality? That Google and Facebook and, and Amazon have, and most of the time, and this isn't a, meant to be a slight to anyone out there who's building products or building businesses, but you know, most of the time, we're just not creating things which are that incredible. You know, it's like comparing yourself against like the greatest Olympic athlete and going, "Well, if they can run 100 <laughs> meters in nine seconds, then hey, anyone should be able to."
0: So I I, I love the the analogy. And I think it helps explain this transition from perform or sort of from d- demand conversion to sort of demand creation i I love your analogy of the rocket ship um that you used in the book. Can you explain that because it 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 certainly helps us understand how we need to think about it but also how we need a budget for things going yeah, forward yeah sure,
1: yeah, well, yeah, rockets that go to outer space are really cool aren't they and they're 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 kind of they capture my imagination probably as much as anyone's it's really interesting to think about like how engineers put a rocket together and how they distribute the fuel that's put into that rocket to get it to be able to deliver its payload so basically when you're when you're building a rocket there are sort of three main stages really that the rocket needs to go through. The first is blast off. So the rocket needs to get up off the ground and it needs to reach the kind of velocity that's required to make it out of the Earth's atmosphere um and then as it's reaching the end of that journey there's a second stage where a second engine a completely different engine with a with a different fuel source is engaged to get it all the way out of the atmosphere and into space and then there's a third engine with a third fuel source which then powers it through space and towards its its payload and and so if you think of the fuel in a rocket as being a little bit like marketing budget What the rocket doesn't do is use all that fuel on that first stage of getting up out of the ground. If it did, what would happen? It would, it would would have an even more impressive blast off. It would blast off into the sky even (laughs) faster and more explosively, but then it wouldn't have enough, enough fuel to get it all the way. It would just, it would get really high and then it would fall out of the sky and crash to the earth and everyone would die. And so what, we need to be doing is like thinking like engineers with a rocket. We need to use some of our budget or some of our fuel on that really important job of kind of going, going fast, quickly. We need to reserve some of that budget for those next stages, which are about kind of, you know, making sure that we not only get up off the ground, but we continue through and out, out of the atmosphere and continue to our payload because our payload is. know 10 years down the track an exit event an ipo or a very large profitable business that's a that's a fantastic ongoing concern Uh, and so that's the way that i sort of think about it at the moment when we when we put all of our money into performance marketing it's like an engineer putting all of the fuel into the first stage of the rocket blasting off Uh, and so it makes us go really really fast and that's super exhilarating and feels like great fun but then we hit this plateau and we fall out of the sky and crash and so so what you know, really, we should think of our marketing budgets in that way. How do we spend a bit of it getting off the ground, a bit of it escaping the atmosphere, and a bit of it to sort of that final journey of of reaching our payload?
0: So when we when we look at um, the sort of the shift from the you know, from existing demand to future demand, the type of marketing is completely uh, you you write about it as being completely different. So yeah. if if you're if you've uh, do you see these as completely separate initiatives or do, do you believe that um, that both can be done well together? And I think the the one that I've always referred to, and a lot of people have in the U.S. are um, brands in the insurance industry that are doing um, work like Geico, which is pretty well known internationally. Uh, yeah. Argu- arguably, I mean, can you arguably do performance marketing? Are response-driven marketing in a branded way? They they seem um, they seem to be they seem to be in my mind the best examples of that possibility. Yeah.
1: Uh, so uh, I mean, rather than sort of picking on the anecdotal examples, I'll go back to sort of the research and what the what the sort of data shows. So. Yeah, let's talk fundamentals. Uh, So so creating um, future demand, as uh, as you point out, is a really different exercise to converting existing demand. So converting existing demand is, as we've talked about, it's about putting an offer in front of people in a pretty rational way because they're ready to buy, right? They're interested in product information and prices and features and benefits and all that kind of stuff because they're making a decision on what to buy. So that information is super relevant to them. Um, when we're creating future demand, those people aren't ready to buy yet, right? So the the job that we've got to do is to make ourselves familiar to them, make ourselves kind of likable to them, um, and and make sure that we sort of stick in there in their minds as a company that they kind of are familiar with, feel a sense of that familiarity and trust, and um, hopefully like a little bit. Um, and, and so that the style of communication there is really different. You know, what we're all we're really trying to do is kind of stand out and cut through, form a bit of an emotional connection, be really memorable. And so that's where we kind of go to brand advertising, which, you know, isn't really doing, isn't trying to do a sales job at all. It's just trying to, you know, get you to notice and remember and and like the company that's being advertised. Um, and doing that without presenting sales information to them at the same time, because that information is useless and frankly a bit annoying most of the time if you're kind of, you know, your day's being interrupted by someone trying to shout product information at you for something that you're not even interested in buying. And so they are really, they are two really different disciplines. And what the um, the IPA work has shown is that. When you try to do them both, it's it's usually um, quite problematic. We usually end up doing neither of those jobs particularly well, um, and it's better that we divide those jobs out. Now, what um, what they also found at the IPA is there's certain types of campaigns um, which they termed brand response campaigns, and they uh, looked at a campaign like there was a big campaign for Expedia in the UK and in France, uh, and the the tagline was travel yourself interesting and they made these funny brand ads which showed people that would normally be considered really interesting being sort of outshone and having more attention paid to them um, uh, by uh by people that weren't normally anywhere near so interesting but had previously been traveling and so you had sort of the The nerd from the office capturing everyone's attention because they could tell this amazing story about this amazing place that they'd just been rather than people talking to the boss um and so they did these sort of really you know they're really funny brand ads and then uh they did they did separate kind of you know what you would call performance marketing or sales activation you know kind of sale ads for the kind of destinations that they were promoting and the offers that they had on. And they dressed those offers up in the same clothing, i.e. the design language was really, really similar. Visually, they looked really similar, but they didn't try and do the funny bit at all. They just tried to put the information in front of people in a way that reminded them of that positive emotional experience that they'd had Mm. with the brand ad. And what they found was those style of campaigns where we're doing both brand and performance within the same campaign, but we're splitting those jobs out very clearly into separate executions and not trying to do them both within the same execution. Um, that has worked, you know. That's that's typically what tends to work the best. Um, now, not being American, I don't know about Geico. I believe there's a gecko involved. Um, that's what I've heard, and um, <laughs> and and so I don't know how their sort of the structure of their campaign works and. And, and also, I should say that there are always outliers. There are always a, a kind of a, you know, um, a rule can always be disproven by some sort of anecdotal examples. So they may well be doing brand and performance in the same execution and thriving at that because somehow they've managed to kind of do that in a way that that's very effective. But I'd say generally... The rule is, you know, we should think of those two jobs as being quite separate and we should be disciplined in approaching those, those two jobs and executing on them in separate uh, in separate streams. If we consider our total marketing spend requirement, and this is something which is, you know, again, really been, um, really been challenged by the advent of performance marketing by those who consider that all we need is performance marketing because what happens is we start a company we have that sort of early stage high growth we're reaching those early customers uh and our cost per acquisition is uh is is really good right let's say it's kind of it costs us 20 dollars to make a sale and that cost of acquisition when we put it on the p l and look at kind of the unit economics of the business. Um, we can see that that's that's great. That it only costs us twenty dollars, so that's going to spit out for every product sold, let's say twenty dollars of profit. Um, and uh, and and so what we do is we then just extrapolate that forward and say, well, you know, all we need to do is spend twenty dollars. Per product on advertising, uh, and um, and that's how we'll grow and grow and grow. And it misunderstands the point that those that early set of customers, that existing demand is going to run out. And then what we're going to need to do is spend money on both creating future demand, making people more aware of us, and also then converting that existing demand. So our exactly. marketing spend probably actually doubles, like to be able to actually sustain the level of growth that we have in our early days. Is going to cost probably double what it costs in um, in in those early days, and so. What happens then is we kind of get to year two or year three, and we're like, uh oh, it's $40 per customer actually to acquire, which means we're now no longer profitable uh, and our business is in threat. And oh God, what are we going to do? And so we need to be really thinking about, you know, from a budgeting perspective, think about what's it going to cost us to make the sale today and also generate the likelihood of a new sale tomorrow so that our cost of acquisition and our performance metrics can be just as good next year as they have been this year. And that's all about kind of, you know, thinking about how are we going to make our lives easier next year? Um, not much more difficult. And if all we do is performance marketing, you know, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for an awful lot of pain next year because we haven't done that other important job. And all of a sudden it's much more expensive to
0: to find customers. So there's no way to solve for that. That's just, that's just the reality of the business that we need to plan for. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it does mean,
1: I mean, it, 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 it involves making annoying decisions. Like, do we need to spend more on marketing or do we need to spend the same amount but we do we need to rebase our expectation of growth so it's actually, it's lower in the short term but it's much higher in the long term. Uh, and so these are the decisions which I'm not saying are particularly easy ones to make for a business but I am saying are essential to make if we want the business to be thriving in three years, four years, five years time. Uh, you know, our job as marketers is not only to grow the business super fast today at the expense of the business performing well or even existing in the future. You know, that's, that's, a, that's obviously a foolish way to look at the role of marketing if you're a proper strategic marketer who's actually concerned with the long-term growth and performance of your company.
0: What's the role that creativity can play in sort of you know, better ensuring success when looking at this from a future growth perspective, yeah. what are the lessons that we need to keep in mind?
1: Yeah, so creativity is, you know, is particularly important in the creation of future demand. What we've probably learned from the the data um, and the evidence over the past few years is that in terms of performance marketing, creativity is is less critical to that area. So performance marketing can often work very well on a basis that's completely rational. It's not particularly creative. It's putting information in front of people at the right point in time. If we dress that up with nice design, then, yes, that's probably going to improve it to some extent. But, but, you know, a lot of very effective performance marketing, you would argue, is not particularly well-designed nor particularly creative, but it works. Um, On the other side, creating future demand, and this is all about doing things like standing out, um, bonding with people, making them like you, making them remember you, The fact is that creative things, that is things that are really original, really engaging, really beautifully crafted in terms of their execution, those things are much more likely to stand out, be remembered, be liked, be talked about, be reported on by the media, all of that kind of stuff, which drives those exact things that we're trying to drive, which is a a familiarity with our company and uh, some kind of emotional closeness to our company. Creativity is critical. It's very, very hard to do good future demand creation with really uncreative work that no one notices, cares about, talks about, or remembers. Uh, and so that's where I think we we need to be focusing our creative efforts is really on, on the future demand piece and allowing ourselves to actually be pretty rational and not that creative on the uh on the conversion of
0: existing demand. So I guess it's kind of an uphill battle if you're if you're a, a CMO. Of a brand that's in early stage who's got performance marketing, and um, then you have to have um, you're being approached by your professional advisors or outside agency people, meaning, okay, we have to make the turn and now we have to really do far more distinctive, braver, unique work. Mm. Do you find in startups that that's an easy um, pivot for them to make, or do you find that generally CMOs at the startup level? find it hard to reorient to brand let's call it art of future growth yeah. harvesting. um
1: yeah definitely i mean you're you're in this like the, the truth is what gets measured gets managed right and because we you know one of the reasons that but the performance marketing has has had such an amazing rise is that it's very very easy to measure we've got essentially free tools uh, those dashboards on our you know google ads or facebook ads right. or whatever. we've got these we've got these free tools. Which allow us to measure the efficiency of our performance marketing. So, so we can really, it's very easy for us to go to the CEO or the board and sort of say, here's how this is performing. It's really much harder to do that on the brand side and, and actually a company that I co-founded and, and is um, is one of these early stage startups now. It's called Tracksuit and it's a brand health tracking uh, SaaS platform for startups, which costs about one tenth of what it costs you to do brand health tracking through one of the sort of conventional big research providers. And the reason that we started that company was to solve this exact problem, right? So how do we make sure that CMOs or marketers inside startups have a dashboard of how they're going in the long-term alongside their dashboard of how they're doing in the short-term? Interesting. And and that's been a phenomenally successful business. So that business has been in market about 18 months. Um, it's grown to over $2 million in, in annual recurring revenue, which for a New Zealand B2B SaaS startup is sort of, um, you know, extremely extremely high growth Um, because the startup community and the small business community and even some of the big business community have found this tool incredibly useful in terms of communicating the value of what they're doing uh, up to their CEOs and their boards. They've also found the tool incredibly useful from a sales perspective. And this is one thing which I've found absolutely amazing out of this particular journey is that we've got startups who are taking their tracksuit dashboard, their their dashboard that shows how they're growing their awareness and growing their consideration among all of their category buyers, they're taking that information. And by the way, when they track themselves, they also track five of their competitors. So what they do is when they're going really well, they'll take that into a sales conversation with a distributor or a retail, uh, a retailer that they want to be placed in. And they'll say, look, we're creating a whole lot of future demand here more and more people know about us and would consider us. This is some pretty good evidence that you should stock us because there are, you know, there's demand out there. And mm-hmm. they're winning those conversations over their competitors with that data. They're able to increase their in Aaron Bass's language increase their physical avail- availability increase their retail presence because they can show that they're building their brand in a way that will send more people into that retail environment to buy their product so i think that's kind of a really really interesting side effect of of what we're doing is 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 really kind of framing up brand and people's success in building brands in a way that helps them make greater sales in future not just through
0: ads but through you know their placement in, in retail environments any tips on how to size opportunity if i'm if i'm sitting down and i'm trying to make the sort of the granular business case do you have any tips or have you heard other people um, report on ways to to get at it to sort of size that market it almost seems like that the inevitable question f- uh, coming from somebody who's a little bit skeptical of it is going to be pushing back on that marketing person and saying, mm. but what's the size of the market we can predict for next year, or for three years, or for five years? Mm. Any any suggestions on how that can be quantified or or put into a, a believable hypothesis?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in um, in in startup parlance, we sort of talk about total addressable market or TAM, and total addressable market is um, is really the um, quantification of all category buyers. And so we think about, right, you know, our the the type of person who has our problem uh, and, and needs to solve it, they have these characteristics. And then if we do some research or use some existing sort of population data out there in the market, it's usually not hard to find how many people in any market share those characteristics. So that's where we can start in terms of a total addressable market. These are all the people that could conceivably buy our product. Then what we do is we'd say, well, what is the life cycle of purchase for a category like ours? And perhaps we know that because we're entering a category that's got those sorts of um, characteristics well-defined, or perhaps we don't know yet, but we can have a stab at it. And then we can go, well, there's probably this many people in market each year for our type of product. And then within that, we can say, well, how many people do we think that we could you know, compellingly a- attract away from other competing offers because there are always companies around and will be in the future companies around who are solving the same sort of problem as us or you know the consumer could go to or the customer could go to uh, for a similar sort of um, solution Uh, and so let's say those kind of you know, there's four competitors in the market um, that, that could be other options, then we divide that kind of annual total addressable market by four. That's probably a kind of, you know, uh, all else being equal, a kind of good way of figuring out how many customers there are out there to reach um, in the next year. So that's probably the kind of simple maths. Um, it's very back of envelope, obviously. No, it's helpful, um, and, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and obviously you um, will start to do some things like say, well, if we're really ambitious and we do a better job than our competitors, then perhaps we'll get to this point. Um, and so it's using sort of some simple logic like that, I think, to get back to the amount of people that it's, it's, um, it, it's good to sort of target and expect from a growth point of view each year.
0: My last question, James, is, is brand a term we should avoid using?
1: Uh, I don't know if it's about avoiding using it. I, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's, I think because it's so, people are so familiar with the term, um, you know, it's got some, yeah, yeah, it's got yeah, some yeah there's it, no clarity right? around it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so, I think, I, I think, I think what I'm trying to do with future demand really is, is, is provide a clarity to what brand does and what its value is. So I think brand is still legitimate as a term. It just needs a bit of explanation around it to make it obvious to someone who is more financially or commercially driven what the value is of that brand stuff. And what I've kind of seen happen, I guess, with the book. Um, and and a bit with the tracksuit through which we sort of talk about all of these same principles is people's attitudes changing to brand. So people going, okay, I get this. I kind of get this now. I get why it's important. And so I'm less skeptical of it and I'm a bit more embracing of it. So I think that's where I'd really love to get to the point, you know, maybe it's in five or 10 years where everyone kind of goes, okay, we understand how brand works now. We understand that it's the creation of future demand. We need to do that for this, that, and the other reason. And that's why brand building is important. Um, And so I think... The word will continue to exist in our vocabulary. I just hope it will exist with less skepticism and more understanding.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think existing versus future demand is a great way to talk about it. It is uh, James Herman, founding partner at Previously Unavailable in Auckland, New Zealand, and the author of um, the new book is called Future Demand. You can check it out on Amazon. I've read it. It's really strong. And I think, uh, I hope we've done it justice on the conversation today, James. Thanks for participating. Thanks so much, Fergus. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.